Grace to you and peace, faith family. If you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Book of Acts, chapter 24. We are going to continue our verse-by-verse series through the book of Acts as we are now with Paul. Uh, For those of you who have been with us for any length of time and you've been on this journey with us, we would have awakened this morning. We have kind of unpacked our luggage. We are in a jail cell in a little place called Caesarea. Uh, This is uh, not Caesarea Philippi, but it is Caesarea by the sea. We are on the the edge of the Mediterranean, uh, and we are going to be awaiting a trial before what we would say is the Roman governor or the procurator. Uh, And the reason we are on trial is due to, the reason we are in Caesarea, if you remember, is there is this plot that was set by a group of men and supported by some of the members of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court, uh, that they were going to kill Paul. And so the commander decides to send Paul under guard of some 400 soldiers to the governor to await a trial there. And uh, finally, finally, we are going to be before this procurator and all the the charges are going to be labeled, the defense is going to be had, and then finally we're going to get to the bottom of all this, justice. Justice, we're finally going to get there and have an actual trial. Or, or maybe what we're going to discover is that through all of this, we're made aware of God's providential plan to get Paul further. Maybe, maybe it just stops all here, right? And Paul is end up being freed by Felix, and he's uh, going to be let go by the governor. Or, and if, the, and if that is the case, by the way, that would show that God's promise to uh, Paul that he would also reach Rome, that God, God would have been seen as unfaithful. Or maybe, or maybe God has a plan. Could it be, ladies and gentlemen, that the means of gospel proclamation is through the experience of gospel prosecution or persecution? Could it be, guys, ladies and gentlemen, that the very truth is, is that oftentimes it is in the midst of persecution and pain that we're able to proclaim the gospel even more clearly. For where does your hope really rest? Does it rest in circumstances and situations that are around you, the wind and the waves? Or does it rest in someone who controls all of time? So we are going to pick up And I'm going to ask for you to get dressed and get ready because we need to get to the courtroom. The trial is about to begin. Felix is taking his seat. And I want you to, uh, you know, for the best of your ability, is to get as uncomfortable as possible because we are about to be very uncomfortable. And let's read. Acts chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 27. This is the word of God. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullius, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, a most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness." But that I might not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, 
and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and when we arrested him, we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, neither in the temple nor in the synagogue nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make an accusation if they should have anything else against me. Or else, let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found that I went when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet some ha- and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious, good God and King, we come before you and oftentimes in our lives we can't see the forest for the trees. Situations and circumstances that have arrived in our lives in the world in the past few weeks, God can often create distractions for us and disappointments, frustrations, And God, often if we're not careful, we look at these times and these situations and circumstances and we allow them to be the story. We allow them to create the main point of the narrative and we forget to put them in context of the overall plan. 
And that, God, in that, we lose trust in you. We lose trust in your goodness and your grace. We lose trust in the fact that, God, you are doing something far greater than we could ever think or ask. So, God, I pray that if there is one in this place who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that in their journey, in their travels, and whatever has brought them into this place this morning, that, God, they would come to see you and know you. That, God, they would not, like Felix, delay, push it off, but God, today would be their day of salvation. And Father, for those of us who are yours, that we would know that it is because of your resurrection that we, that we have hope. And that God, we would see the truth of your word and we would see the truth that you have given us and that God, we would be your people and we would be willing to proclaim you regardless of the persecution that may come. Bless us together today. Bless the reading and preaching and teaching of your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Now I know when some of you heard that we were going to be preaching through 27 verses, you have already called and delayed your appointment for lunch. I hope, I hope that is not the case. Let me try to be faithful to your time, but also to his word. We're going to begin here in verses 1 through 9 with the accusation. Since we have arrived, five days has passed. Five days have passed since Paul has arrived in Caesarea under guard from Jerusalem, under accusation of sedition with absolutely no evidence. I wonder what the Jews back in Jerusalem must have thought when they learned that their plot to kill Paul was thwarted and now he was in Caesarea. You ever wonder what they were thinking? Especially these guys who had vowed that they, were gonna, they weren't going to eat or drink until Paul had died. wonder what they're thinking. They're forced to regroup because now they're going to be required to plead their case before Felix. They're not going to be able to subvert justice. Now they're actually going to have to come and they're going to have to plead their case. So let us look now and at the accusations, and the first thing we want to see is who are the accusers? We are told here, according to the writings of Luke, that it, it consisted of Ananias the high priest. So we know that the high priest is there, we know that some elders are there, and these elders were most more than likely members of the Sanhedrin that would have agreed to him, with him. So the, that makes sense, right? Why would the high priest bring a group of people that disagreed with him? in order to come. And we know that Ananias was more than likely a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the high priest of the Sanhedrin, but he was more than likely a Sadducee. So we have these Ananias. We have Ananias. We have some elders who more than likely agreed with him. And then we have their spokesperson, whose name is Tertullius. And the word here for uh, the, the spokesperson, the, who he is, we know that he, the idea is that he is a rhetor. That's where the Greek word comes from, a rhetor, is where we get our word for rhetoric. So he is the lawyer, if you will, for the prosecution. Now, it was not uncommon in this day for the Jews to hire pagan lawyers who would be familiar with Roman law and Jewish law. Because this would be a man who would be able to come in and not only be able to provide a prosecution that would be in keeping with their Jewish heritage, but also in one in which the Roman governor would be obviously interested in. 
So we don't know for certain whether this man, Tertullius, was a Jew or a Gentile. Now it seems to me that in verses 3, 4, and 6 that he identifies with them. In verse 3 he says, we acknowledge this. In verse 4, that I may not weary you any further, I beg you grant us by your kindness. In verse 6, he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. So it seems like in these three verses that he identifies with these Jews. So it may be that, hey, he's, he's identifying the fact that he is a Jew himself. But then again in verse 9, it indicates that maybe he wasn't a Jew. In verse 9, it says the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting these things were so. So, whether you believe he is a Jew or he is not a Jew, there is some indication here for both sides. Regardless, what we do know is that these people will get together, these accusers will get together, they will travel the two-day journey to see to it that Paul is going to be tried before the Roman governor. And you may be asking, what would put such hatred in the heart of these men who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing that they can accuse him of? Who would put such hatred in the heart of such men so that they would come to the place of wanting to kill or have this man be killed? Well, Jesus warned us. Jesus told us. In John chapter 8, verse 44, when he was speaking to these men, the Sanhedrin, he comes to this and he says to them, I'm going to begin in verse 42 of chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe in me. Don't be confused about it all, brothers and sisters. But I would require you to see and know that none other than Satan himself, the father of lies, the father of death, the father of killing, is the one who can place hatred in the hearts of man in such a way in which they would want to see such evil done. So these are the accusers. Now let us ask, who is this judge? We have the governor, Felix. Felix is the authority with the judicial power which we, we, which we were introduced to last week. If you remember this, we talked about this a little bit last week, how Felix was now this procurator over the entire area, and he would have the responsibility and the authority of the Roman uh, court. We had Lysias, Lysias who, was the, who was the commander in Jerusalem, and he was responsible for keeping peace, but it would be Felix who would be responsible for keeping order. I'm not going to go all the way back through that. If you want to listen to the sermon last week, you could, you could definitely pull that up. So we have here, we have the accusers, we have the, the, the judge, and lastly, we have the one who is being accused, the Apostle Paul, who is a Christian apostle, whose background was the fact that he was both Roman and Jewish. 
who we believe and we have come to know that he was not, this man was not a great orator. In other words, that Paul was not going to stand before you with a great skill of, of, of uh, oration and be able to uh, uh, convince you with these fancy words. The very thing that we've become used to in our modern day culture of Christian church. We like those who can speak. We like those who can fancy us, who can entertain us. But i got to tell you this, that Paul himself said that is not him. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Ladies and gentlemen, you can have men come and preach the word to you Sunday after Sunday and be great orators, be great entertainers, and you could leave amused. But if they do not have the spirit and the power of the Spirit of God, then you leave none, other, none better than you were when you came in. Just a few years ago, I was sitting with some individuals, let's say. We were having lunch together. And I remember them coming and they were saying, man, the message was great in church this morning. And I said, oh, really? What was the message? What was so great about it? They said, man, it was so entertaining. I laughed. I laughed. It was so good. It was so fun. And I said, okay, what was, what was good about it? What was, what was good about it? And they said, man, it was, it was the fact that he just really attached the whole thing to our life. And I said, man, that's important. That's great. I said, where was Jesus? Where was the spirit of power? Where, was, where were you convicted of sin? Where were you looking for God to uh, uh, redeem you? And how, does, how did Jesus' death on the cross ever mean anything to you in the midst of the entire sermon? Not being mean, I honestly didn't know. And they said, well, you know, come to think of it. The, the, the man in the room said, now you come to think of it, I don't think Jesus or his death or his cross or his resurrection was ever mentioned. And it's happening Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. People come and they gather and they call it a church. And they call themselves Christians. And they come to be entertained. And entertained they will be. Because what you win them with, you have to keep them with. And I won you with entertainment in all the show. And now I've got to keep the entertainment in the show. And they walk away and they have no clue on who or what Jesus has done for them. I tell you, faith family, that I pray that my message and my preaching is not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and power. I pray that the Spirit of God will move in this place and He will move your hearts to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that's the people. So now what we're going to do is look at the, 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 the prosecution here. They lay out their case against Paul. Can you imagine all the pomp that's going on here? You ever been in a courtroom? You know, the, the, the lawyer or the judge comes in, and he comes in in all his pomp. He has the black robe on, and, uh, well, everybody now, please rise. And now you may be seated. Can you imagine, if that's the case in our modern day, what the pomp is here? You have Felix and all his majestic regalia sitting now here on what is called the Bema seat or the judgment seat. You got these Jews all decked out in their best 
uh, the best the money can buy. You got this this Jewish lawyer. I can't imagine what he must look like. Or the lawyer for the Jews, I should say. I can't imagine what he would look like. So you got this. You got these this 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 Felix who has all this Roman authority. You got these Jews who have all this regalia of all their high hats and their long robes and all this. And then you got this beaten up prisoner, Paul. You're going to put your money on in a betting situation here, right? Paul has, Paul has very little to do with being a lawyer, although he might have known the law a little bit. He's definitely not this majestic royalty taking his place, but he's a beaten, beaten prisoner sitting there all alone. But ladies and gentlemen, what Paul has that none of these people have is he has in his conscience that these men could never understand a call from God. A call from God to be God's man. And beloved brothers in Christ, men, that's what we have. When the world doesn't understand us, when they can't get us, and you have that call from God on your heart, and they can't quite understand why you do what you do, how you do what you do, why are you saying what you're saying, we have a conscience and we have the call of God upon our conscience to be who He has called us to be. Can't we all just get along? Why are you so adamant on preaching the gospel? And I want to tell you, if we ever find ourselves against a great number, and if you ever find yourself outnumbered by people who seem to have the look May we be comforted by the truth of who we are in Christ and what we've been called to do. For I remind you, remember in chapter 23, verse 11, I'm going to continue to bring us back to this throughout the rest of this journey. Remind you on the night immediately following when Paul stood before the council, the Lord stood by his side and he said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, you must also witness in Rome. Also, Jesus tells Paul to what? Take what? Courage. Why would he need to tell Rome? To, uh, why would he need to tell Paul to take courage? Because you're going to need it, son. You're going to need courage. Because there's going to be times where you're going to have fear, and you're going to have to face it with courage. There's going to be times, faith family, when courage is absolutely necessary. You can't avoid it. I can't tell you how many times in my in discipleship of people that I've sat with, they, don't want, they fear the idea of what people are going to think or what people are going to say. And it's almost as if sometimes I hear other people say, well, you know, you shouldn't have that fear. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have that. I, I say, no, you're going to have that fear. Take courage. Be courageous. Be courageous. I tried hard to imagine what Paul must be experiencing here. I wonder if this is, could you, could you, uh, maybe, maybe I'm off. But I, I, I don't think this is exactly the way Paul probably dreamed of testifying to Rome. That he was going to be transferred by some 400 soldiers on the horseback in order to get to be before Felix, where Felix was going to try him. I wonder, I wonder if this is Paul going, I never, never saw this coming. 
But nonetheless, here he is. I wonder if Paul questioned the mystery of the circumstances while trusting in the providence of God. I wonder if you can. Have you ever looked back on your journey and said, I never saw it happening like that? Never saw that company, that coming. The big right-handed cross across the jaw where you were like, where in the world did that come from? You see, the question, beloved, for us in this time and in this place is can you hold in the paradox of your faith mystery of your circumstances while trusting in the providence of God? I think that's the walk of faith. Trusting in truth. Knowing what we can know absolutely and trusting in what we don't know. I think that's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Or I'm going to tell you, if you were to ask me to walk by sight, I would have lost my faith a long time ago. Yet I walk in the truth. And I walk in trusting in that truth. So here we are. Paul is summoned out of his cell into court where Tertullius awaits his attempt to accuse. And Tertullius begins his accusation by addressing Felix, which was actually normal. But what Tertullius does is, well, he just, a lot of flattery, right? Which is always a lie. Always a lie. Flattery, all lies. He praises the governor for peace and the reforms, or what we would call improvements of the nation. Most excellent Felix, we we thank you for all the reforms and for the peace. It's all garbage. When you go back and you study Jewish history, ladies and gentlemen, that during Felix, there was never as much uh, animosity as there was before. There was less peace in the days of Felix than there was before. There was more rebellion among the Jews than in any time before because of the quote-unquote improvements Felix had created. You've got to understand that at this time, at this very moment, Felix had just murdered Jonathan, the high priest. Which, by the way, the reason he murders Jonathan, uh, uh, the, one of the results of him murdering Jonathan, the high priest, is actually going to be the very reason for Felix's removal and Festus coming in. You see, what the lawyer is doing is what so many people do today. He's scratching an itch. That all people in authority like to be scratched. And what is that itch? Their pride and their ego. Oh, I'm excellent. Yes, yes, well, well, I am kind of excellent, aren't I? Well, yes, I am bringing peace. And then he said in verse 3, In every way and everywhere we accept this with gratitude. It doesn't take rocket science to see through all of this. And then he says, Ah, but, but to detain you no further, I beg your kindness to hear us briefly. Uh, Tertullius, you're long, pla- you're long past brevity at this point, right? Reminds me of people who say this. They go, well, I want to make a long story short after they've already made a short story long. 
I often tell them, You've all, you already failed at that, brother. Go ahead with the story. And then finally he gets to the point. After all this flattery, he's going to get to the point. Here are the charges. First, Paul is a plague. He's a troublemaker who stirs up riots throughout the world. Now, this would be important to Felix. Why? Because it would, it would, it would threaten the, the peace of Rome. And Rome was, Rome was, very import, was very impressed by leaders who could maintain peace in the midst of all of that's going on. So Felix was very interested in maintaining this peace because if Caesar found out that Felix couldn't maintain peace, then Caesar would have to remove Felix. And by the way, again in church history, Felix was known for his brutal response to insurrection. And he would maintain peace at any cost and everyone knew it. So the first charge against Paul is this, Paul, this idea of he was, he, was a, he was an insurrectionist. And this would, char, this would raise the flame to the, to the Roman sentiment. The second charge is that he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Now there are two ways that we have to look at this. If Tertullius is accusing Paul of being a Christian, which according to verse 14 seems to be the case, in verse 14 it says, Nor can they prove you, to you the charges of any which they now accuse me, but to this I admit that according to the way which they call a sect, I do now serve the God of our fathers. Paul will come to that. So if he is accusing him of that, then actually this is actually a true accusation. He is a ringleader of it. But what does this mean? You see, what Tertullius is doing is what many people try to do. He is linking the charge of sedition with the very claims of Christianity. What Tertullius is doing is he is implying that Christianity itself is dangerous. And because it's dangerous, we need to squash it. However, he may very well be charging Paul with being a part of a sect out of Nazareth. And this sect out of Nazareth was, was known for being assassins. They were known for violating the Roman law. So, regardless of whether he was trying to imply that Christianity was a part of this was a part of sedition, or whether he was trying to charge Paul with being a part of this Nazarene sect that they would have known for, this is the charge that Paul is a part of this sect. And then the third charge in verse 6, Paul had violated the temple, but we seized him. And if you remember, this was the accusation in 2128 that Paul had violated the temple. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, the Jews were given authority to enforce Jewish law in Jewish court. So if he had violated the temple, what would Felix therefore have to do? He would have to give them back to the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin was, a, was responsible for Jewish law. So what Tertullius is basically setting up here is either Paul is going to have to be killed or, or held accountable to Roman law or you're going to have to give him back to us because he is guilty of Jewish law. But it was all baseless. Remember 21 verse 29? 21 verse 29, it says, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple they didn't know if he had brought him into the temple they just supposed it you see the challenge for Tertullius the lawyer is these Asian Jews that actually made the original accusation are actually not present 
And by the way, that, my friend, is going to become a problem. And here in verse 6, there is a variation that adds, after, and so we seized him and would have judged him according to our law, but the tribune, Lysidius, snatched him from our hands with great force, commanding his accusers to come before you. So if this is true, then in verse 8, Tertullius is instructing Felix to consult with Lysias, who would confirm all these accusations against Paul. Now, knowing this, what we would say is, if you studied the way this manuscript is, is formed, the manuscript evidence seems to support the shorter text. In other words, the manuscript evidence seems to support the removal of this text. And if that is the case, it means in verse 8, Tertullius tells Felix to examine Paul carefully himself, and he's going to be able to substantiate these charges. And then in verse 9, the Jews, presumably those who are with this lawyer, join the charge and affirm that all these things are so. Again, this is something I referenced last week. We must remember that the majority doesn't always hold the morality. That the majority doesn't always hold the morality. Ladies and gentlemen, what Paul is actually on trial for is speaking and preaching the gospel. And therefore, this ought not to shock us, really. Preaching the gospel to religious people who are satisfied with their rituals but have no relationship with God is always a daunting task. You don't believe me? Try it. Proclaim the gospel to those who believe they are saved by their efforts and works, and I'll be waiting for you, and I'll be waiting for you in my office on accusations. Because the accusations are coming. When you present the gospel to a group of people who believe their salvation is based upon all the things that they've done, I can tell you that they're going to start accusing you of things. And this is exactly what's happened here. Hey, religious people who believe they are saved by their own efforts and their own works, satisfied with their own rituals, having absolutely no relationship with God, Hearts are far from him. And Paul is having to preach the fact that you are actually not saved by your works. You're saved only by faith in Christ alone. So with this, the prosecution rests. You know your charge. Felix, you know what he's been charged of. And now in verses 10 through 21, we're going to find the defense. Verse 10 says, Felix nods for Paul to speak. And Paul is going to address Felix, but I want you to notice the difference. Paul does not address Felix with flattery. He addresses Felix with facts. The fact that Felix had been judge over Israel, which qualified Felix to handle the matter. Notice he's not defending Felix's virtue, but he's calling on Felix for his experience with these people. Who are these people? These Jews. You've been, you know what they do. You've been around. You've been around the block, Felix. You've been around the block. You know who they are. And Paul starts by defending the charge of insurrection, which would have probably been the most dangerous of all the accusations that he could have ever been charged with in front of Felix. And he starts by saying, I have not incited the Jews. Verse 11, I was in Jerusalem for 12 days worshiping without dispute or stirring up. By the way, these are Tertullius' words. 
neither in the temple, nor in the synagogue, nor in the city. As a matter of fact, Paul says, the burden of proof is on the accuser, and they have no proof of any insurrection. If anyone disturbed the peace, it was going to be the Jews from Asia, it wasn't Paul. Second, the charge of him being a ringleader. Now notice what Paul does. He responds by confessing his guilt. What guilt? The guilt of the gospel. And he says, if I am guilty of being a ringleader of the gospel, then find me guilty. Verse 14 through 16. But this I admit, that's confession, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. You see it? He's giving you his plea. Paul says that they say a sect, but we are not a Jewish denomination. That's what he's saying. They call us a sect. They think we're a sect of Judaism. We are not a sect of Judaism. We are the way. You see, church, we are not an offshoot of Judaism where there's Judaism in the church. There's Israel in the church. We are not that. We are the fulfillment of Israel. We are the answer of the Old Testament. The church is not a sect of Judaism. We are the way, the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now Paul here says, we are a part of the way. We are the fulfillment of all that Judaism was. Paul confesses, I am guilty of worshiping the God of our fathers. I am guilty of believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I am guilty of having hope in God of the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The resurrection of the wicked and the righteous. It's all Paul's way of speaking to everyone present of the judgment that is all before them. That every single one of them is going to face God. He is preaching to Tertullius. He is preaching to the Jews. He is preaching to Felix. He's preaching to everybody there. We will all stand in judgment before God. The righteous and the wicked. And for believing in that, I am guilty. So Paul the accused is making it clear that all will stand before a court like he is doing now. And Paul is saying, I believe the same scriptures. I worship the same God. I share the same hope. And then in verse 16 he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, he is saying this, I have nothing to hide, Felix. I stand before you with a clear conscience that I have done. I have not done as these accusations declare, for I know that I will stand in in judgment before God. And then lastly, he addresses the final accusation, the desecration of the temple in verses 17 through 20. And what Paul tells us, what happened, it's recorded for us in chapter 21, 27 through 30, that he went into the temple for purification. And the Asian Jews came with false accusations that they failed to present to confirm back in Jerusalem. And they once again failed to confirm here before Felix. Tertullius has made an accusation that needed cooperation. And those who made the accusation are not present. Paul is basically saying these are only accusations and they have no evidence. 
He says, I didn't go in to defile the temple. I, came, I went in to be purified in it. I didn't bring a riot. I, w- I didn't bring a crowd. I didn't bring any term- tumult. No trouble. But then Paul sums up all of this by defending those three accusations, and then he gets to the fact of the matter, verse 21. Here's the fact of the matter. He says, uh, starting in verse 20, he says, Or else these men themselves tell what misdeed they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this, for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. That's what I'm on trial for. The charge against me isn't what they are charging me for. The charge against me is what they cried out that is in respect to the resurrection of the dead for which his accusers for that charge are present. Paul places the real issue in, front, in the forefront of the court. I have broken no Jewish law. I had broken no Roman law. The issue, the true issue at hand is this, that as a follower of the way who was resurrected from the dead was the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. The reason I'm being persecuted is because I believe in Jesus. Paul is saying, I am on trial for my faith in Christ. You see the irony of the defense. Paul's case is that he is not guilty of anything they have accused him of. But he is guilty of the one thing they didn't want to believe. And that is the truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Which, by the way, demonstrates what? It demonstrates in judgment your resurrection, my resurrection, their resurrection. It demonstrates the hope of a resurrection of all of those who had placed their faith in him. It demonstrates the fact that we again will all stand in judgment because there is life after death because Jesus has defeated death, hell, and the grave. So that's the accusation. And in in our modern day court, Paul would have sat there in his prisoner outfit and he would say, the defense rests, Your Honor. And lastly, we have the judge's deliberation. Judge's deliberation, verses 22 through 27. It says, But Felix, having more knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some prison, to have some freedom, and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Felix delays his verdict for two reasons, by the way. First, it says that he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Remember that he's accused of being a part of this way. And it says that Felix has an accurate knowledge of the way. How? We are not told. We're not told in the passage how that is. We are, we do know that his wife was Jewish. So maybe through that she had come to know something about it. We also know from our past preaching and teaching that there is an evangelist in Caesarea by the name of Philip. 
And we know that there's a church being planted in Caesarea by Philip because we can go back in our studies of the book of Luke and the first few missionary journeys, I mean the first uh, planting of the church in Acts, and we can see that as well. Regardless, we know that he knew about one group related to the accusation, namely this group called the Way. This ought to remind us, by the way, that our witnesses in the world is often greater by our lives lived than we can ever realize. That oftentimes the way in which we as a church live among one another, that people are watching, people are listening, that the world is aware. Second, First, he had a more accurate knowledge of the way, and second, he wanted to wait for Lysias, the commander, to come before deciding the case. Because Lysias would have been the only independent witness to the entire process. But the challenge, there's a challenge here. What's the challenge? The challenge is, if, if Lysias comes and he says that Paul is guilty, then he's going to have to kill Paul. He's going to have to hold him accountable for these things, right? But what if Lysias says that Paul is not guilty? Then he's going to have to what? Release him. What is releasing Paul into the community going to do? It's going to cause some problems, yes? Obviously. Is there any indication in the Bible that... that that Felix may have known what Lysias was going to say. Yes. Do you remember last week? Last week, what do we know that Paul, what came with Paul? This letter. Y'all remember this? Remember when, Paul, when Lysias wrote a letter to Felix? Oh, go with me, 23, Acts 23, verse 26. Verse 25, and he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. With this man, when this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up with them, with the troops, and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law and under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. So we know that Felix has this letter. But Felix says, I'm going to wait for Lysias to come. Seems interesting. And by the way, just for the record, there is no recorded record that Lysias ever comes. There is no record that he ever calls for him to come. I think Felix tips his hand to the verdict. I think he tips his hand in verse 23 when he says, then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. That's startling for a man who's being accused of leading an insurrection, isn't it? That would be similar to us having a terrorist that we know is a terrorist, that's being accused of being a terrorist in our prison and saying, hey, oh, by the way, uh, let all of his terrorist friends please come in and have conversations with him. 
I, I, think, I think what we're seeing here is that Felix may be aware that Paul is not guilty. But he isn't going to rule on the case because of the result and the lack of peace it will engender. I mean, if I can put off a problem indefinitely, then why rule and create a greater problem than merely holding a man in custody? Yeah, sure, you're restricting the freedom of one man. But after all, isn't it better than creating all these other problems? I wonder if, I wonder if it gets to Felix. I wonder if it gets to Felix. I wonder if through all this imprisonment that Felix really starts to struggle with it. Man, I got this guy in prison. I know he's done nothing wrong, but I know if I free him, all, all heck's going to break loose. I wonder if that's why in verse 24 it said after some days, which is an interesting recording from Luke. It says Felix and his wife Drusilla Felix and his wife, Drusilla, call him. Now, I don't have time. I almost did this, but because I was doing 27 verses, I removed this. I want you to go study Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod of Agrippa. Herod of Agrippa from Acts chapter 12. She married Felix at the age of 16. A story of how they got married is rather remarkable. But I'm going to skip it. Let you do your own homework there. So Felix and Drusilla, they send for Paul to hear him and to speak about faith in Christ. You know, this reveals that Paul's defense recorded must have included discussions about Christ Jesus. It says that after they sent for Paul in verse 24 and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And what did Paul discuss? This is so very important. What does Luke record Paul discuss? Listen, three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness. The measuring up of God's standard ethically to a man like Felix. A righteousness. Righteousness is what? Righteousness is the basis for judgment in the resurrection. What would you not want to hear if you were lost in need of a Savior? Is the fact that there is a real thing as true moral objective morality, righteousness, and you are going to stand before God based upon His righteousness, who is ultimately in Christ Jesus. Because ultimately Christ Jesus was the only one who could live the life that we couldn't live. Who died the death that we deserved to die. Who was truly the righteous of God. Ah. So that's number one. He spoke on righteousness. By the way, the second thing he speaks on is self-control. Self-control. The idea of restraining one's own personal appetite. And by the way, he has Felix and Drusilla in front of him. Why would he talk to them about righteousness? Because they were unrighteous. Why would he talk to them about self-control? Guess how they got engaged. Guess how they got married. I'm going to let you study it. Because when you sit back and you think about what all that Paul is saying in relationship to this, 
that Felix would actually take Drusilla from her engaged husband because Drusilla was engaged to a man to be married. Felix takes her because they lacked to keep this G self-control. Now, that's bold, yes? And the third thing, uh, so the, the self-control as evidence of our unrighteousness, and it becomes the basis for our judgment as well. I wonder if you were sitting there, do you think this would all become uh, impactful? So he talks about righteousness, talks about judgment and self-control, and then he talks about the third thing, which is this judgment to come. Paul, what are you doing, man? This is Felix. This is the guy who could free you. Notice when Paul stands before Felix, he doesn't tell him, hey, accept Jesus and all your, you will be healthy and wealthy and wise, man. Accept Jesus and all things are going to go good for you. He doesn't say, hey, Felix, you need Jesus because Jesus is going to help you run this country in a way in which he doesn't do that. What does he do before Felix? He knows that Felix's main need is salvation. Felix's main need is to realize that he is unrighteous, he lacks self-control, and he's going to be judged for those things. Sound familiar? Beloved, the gospel of faith in Jesus only makes sense in light of our sin. Paul comes and he convicts them of their sin in order to have them to have faith in Jesus. And what does Luke record? Felix is alarmed. Why is Felix alarmed? As a matter of fact, Felix is so alarmed, he removes Paul in order to have him come back and talk later. You see, we think in our modern day that if others become alarmed or, or amazed or, or fearful at our preaching, then we must be doing something wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is alarming. To say that I'm a sinner and that I am going to stand before judgment of God is alarming. But the gospel is also good news in the fact that Jesus has come and paid our debt, yes? But if you can't deal with the fact that Jesus, by faith in Christ, you are redeemed, then what does the gospel become? It becomes bad news because it still remains for you to be judged. I wonder if Felix was wanting to be pleased by a sermon only to be alarmed by it. Or maybe, maybe Felix did what, he, what so many men do today. You know, they are, they are going to go and hear it on behalf of his wife. But when confronted with the truth from a man like Paul, the Bible says he is alarmed. Think about it. The procurator was alarmed by a prisoner. The procurator had all the power. But the prisoner actually had more freedom than the procreator actually had himself. So you can see Paul sitting there talking to Felix and Drusilla. And you can see Felix and Drusilla. I can hear it in their heart. I mean, I've been there. I know. Okay, Paul, shut up. You're talking too much about sin and about judgment. I've got to get to other matters. Go sit in prison. I'll call you back. I'll call you back. Go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. So close. Here we have a man that's so close 
It seems he even is convicted. It seems there to be an element of conviction. But he's never willing to believe by faith in Jesus. A man that in this day and time is so busy with all of his other other responsibilities that he wasn't able to deal with his most essential and primary need, redemption. Luke records it was also that he'd hoped through this opportunity Paul would give him a bribe for his release. You see, we know this is rampant throughout Roman leadership. We can see that all throughout history. And Paul never offered, and Felix never relented. And just in case you think this is a weekend night, I hope you packed enough, y'all. Verse 27. But after two years had passed, two years, 720 days, all why, by the way, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix, like a procreator before him, tries to wash his hands of everything and ride the fence. Now, some of you may be asking, why two years? Why not longer? Well, Felix is replaced by Festus. And history records that Felix's administrative flaws became his demise. Despite trying to do the Jews a favor, there will rise an incident of uncivil unrest in Caesarea among Jews and Gentiles that will anger the Jews. The Jews are going to send a delegation to Caesarea in Rome, and that will lead to Felix's removal. Imagine that. Felix was trying to partner with those who, who demanded evil, and now that, they, now that he makes them upset, they have him removed. Imagine that. Be careful who you're in bed with. So now we have a change in administration. What's going to be of Paul? What's going to be of Paul? We'll pick up on that next week. But from now until next week, we're going to spend two years in prison. Y'all ready? Two years in prison for doing everything right? Two years in prison. I wonder how many of you would spend two days in prison and wonder where God is. Two hours, two minutes. God, you must, you must have gotten something wrong. My two years, do you, you're two years, two years, two years, two years in prison. Let us be reminded, church, that God's delays may simultaneously lead to human disappointments and divine appointments. Let us be ready in season and out of season to declare what the hope that is in us. Oh, but don't miss this. There are some of you who may be in here like Felix, and you're wanting to do away with what you've just heard. Some of you may have come to this place and you can say, hey, pastor, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to deal with this at another time. Beloved, I warn you. I warn you, maybe there won't be another time. 
Maybe this is your last warning. Maybe this is it. I don't say it to frighten you if it does frighten you. There was a story I heard one time about a meeting in hell. Satan called his four leaning demons together and he commanded them to think up a lie that would trap more souls. One demon came to him and said, I got it. I got it, Satan. I'm going to go to earth and tell people there's no God. Satan says, that's not going to work. Not for everyone because people can look around them and see that there's a God. Second demon suggests, I'm going to go tell them there's no heaven. Satan, ah, I think everyone ultimately in their heart knows or believes there's a life after death and they want to go to heaven. Third demon comes along and he says, let's tell them no, there's no hell. Ah, Satan's like, no. I think their conscience tells them that there's judgment, that there has to be justice in everything. We need a better lie. And that's when the fourth demon comes in and says, hey, I think I got it solved. I'm going to go to earth and tell them there's no hurry. And that pleased Satan. My warning to you is don't wait. My warning to you is don't wait. One of my favorite quotes when it comes to repentance is this. You can never repent too soon because you don't know how too soon may be too late. You can never repent too soon because you never know when too soon will be too late. So for those of you who are lost in here, I would call you to repent and to come and know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. For righteousness, self-control, and judgment all demonstrate to us that we will face him one day, yes? And for those of us who are his children, I'm looking in the faces of many of my brothers and sisters in this place, and I am very well aware of many of your stories. Stories of cancer. Stories of health problems. Stories of violence. Stories of theft. Stories of uncertainty, stories of death. And I'm asking you a true question that Monday is coming. Beloved, Monday is coming. Can we live in the mystery while also trusting in providence? When you find that, when you find the capacity to live in the mystery and yet still trust in God, you will find a contentment that is beyond anything you've ever known. Because if you can't, you are always going to be looking for something. You're always going to be looking for something. Let's stand to our feet and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. If you're here this morning, I want you to know that we as a church participate in the Lord's table every Sunday morning. 
because we call him our Lord, we come to his table, we participate in his elements, reminding us of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, his body and his blood. So I want you to prepare your hearts. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ this morning and you would like to come and participate in the Lord's Supper, we invite you to come. We want you to come. That's, we want you to be reminded that of all the things that you may have done wrong this week, all right, it's in Jesus that we ultimately find our hope. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, we would call you to faith in Christ. Obviously, we would say that you uh, are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper after coming to believe and being baptized. That's what we would want. Our desire, our full desire is for you to come to believe in Jesus and to be baptized so that you can identify with the church, you can participate in his supper, and you can worship him with us. So church, as we prepare our hearts now for this, let us bow our heads before our great God and King confessing our sins together, trusting in his goodness, confessing him as our great God and king. Let us prepare our hearts now so that we don't come to this place in an unworthy manner. Let us pray.